0: the spirit of Delphi, speaker of the prophecies of Phoebus Apollo, slayer of the mighty python. Hi again everyone, it's felt like a super long two weeks, but now we're back onto the regularly scheduled programming. There has been a little gap, so just for a tiny refresher to keep things top of mind, the last episode was all about this little tiny paperback book I bought in the Scholastic Book Fair way back in elementary school, called Twisted Tales, Greek Mythology by Terry Deary in 2006. Just quickly, the book is for children, so the way that the 10 myths it retells are described is in a silly and slightly modern way, but it's still got enough information in it that I think it helps set a really solid baseline understanding of the most famous legends and a few aspects of what life was like for the people who were living with these myths. And I said that I would come up with a better name for the media episodes. And I'll be honest, I almost forgot, but finally I sat down and gave it a little thought. So this is what I'm going to call them from now on when we discuss a book or a movie, fabled fictions. So that's how we will refer to the episodes we do once a month that goes through a book or movie about great mythology. But anyways, let's just get right into it. This episode, we will be going over some of the mystical groups of ladies that are found in these myths, the muses, the oracles, and the fates. Majority of them are goddesses, the only ones who are mortal are the oracles, but they still possess powers that separated them from the common man. The nine goddesses of the arts, sciences, and literatures are often as a group referred to as the muses. In Greek, their title may translate out to directly mean put in mind or inspire and these ladies were all considered to be the goddesses of inspiration. So first off there's Talia, the cheerful one. She was a muse of comedy and was often portrayed holding a comic mask or a shepherd's crook. Then there's Urania, the heavenly one. She was a muse of astronomy and you can often see her holding a globe. Then there's Melpomene, or she who sings. She's the muse of tragedy, and she's either holding a tragic mask or some of the other symbols of tragedy, such as a sword or a club. Then there's Polyhymena, she of the many hymns. She was the muse of hymns and of sacred poetry, and she's often depicted with a pensive look hidden behind a veil. Then Erato, the lovely one, She was the muse of lyrical poetry and naturally she's usually represented with a lyre. Next up is Calliope, the one with the beautiful voice. She was the muse of epic poetry and Hesiod claims that she was the foremost amongst the nine since she attends on the worshipful princes. After that, there's Cleo, the celebrator or the proclaimer. She's the muse of history and she's often the one holding a scroll. Then Euterpe, she who pleases. She's the muse of flute playing and of course is often usually seen with a flute. And last up is Terpsichore, the one delighted in the dance. She was the muse of dancing and as expected, she's usually shown dancing and sometimes also holding a lyre. So nine is a number that kind of got stuck after the Boeotian worship picked up around them, but there were some alternative groups that consisted of either three or four, but we're just gonna stick with the nine daughters. They are still technically present in our everyday modern life. When an artist or like really anybody refers to another person or maybe just something else that they really like or something that inspires them, as their muse. What is a muse? I mean, I was Josh Safty's muse when he wrote on Kajams. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, things like right. that. Like This is where that saying is derived from. If you remember when we went over Hesiod's Theogony, he dedicated the first hundred lines or so to write out a hymn to the muses to thank them for blessing him with the stories that he was supposed to tell about all the origins of the universe. And this was a very common practice to thank these goddesses for inspiration, or in this case for actually telling the poet a story for him to retell. There's even something sort of like this in the beginning of Disney's 1997 Hercules. The entire intro number that acts as a prologue to the rest of the film is kind of the muses getting us all up to speed and obviously in the movie there's only 5 muses so there were a couple of cuts and apparently people think this was done because having a choreography dance and song with 9 girls would have been too complicated so they trimmed it down to just the muses of poetry, history, comedy, tragedy and dance. And even with this little big change, I won't say I'm in love is definitely one of my favorite Disney songs. but. Here, they are kind of filling the role of the chorus. But, of course, we have introduced the girls all before. They are the daughters of Zeus and Nemozine, the titan goddess of memory. And I think we went over their family tree during episode three. But now, instead of just introducing them by name, let's go over their role in Greek mythology. So the muses were always responsible for the inspiration of song, dance, poetry, and also like keeping a record of like everything that goes on. And they all shared the role equally, eventually though they were all delegated to specific aspects of the arts to watch over. The nymph goddesses, being the daughters of Zeus, had a bunch of siblings who of course were the Olympians, and this obviously also includes Apollo, who kinda turns out to be their leader. And even though they're not Olympians, they also take up residence on Mount Olympus, despite Hesiod saying that he lives nearby them on Mount Helicon. Even though they are technically considered to be responsible for all ancient Greek art, which is where we kind of get the myths from, there are a few legends where they are actually part of the story. So there is one story about a singing contest. It's not the only singing contest myth, and it's also not the only singing contest that the muses were a part of. But this time, the muses were actually participants. So there's this guy, Themis, who was a mortal Thracian singer that was the son of a king and the lover of Hyacinth, a Spartan prince who will come up later, so don't worry, but so. He was very well known for his amazing singing abilities, and he was a little bit too proud of his ability. And of course, he made one surprisingly common party foul that apparently humans didn't learn their lesson from the first few times it happened. But of course, he said that his singing was even better than the muses. Obviously, this was a lie and slander, so the Muses decided to descend down and they entered into a singing contest against the prideful mortal. Then when he lost, which was not a surprise, to punish him for having the audacity to think that he could sing better than the goddesses, they blinded him by slashing out his eyes, which already seems like overkill, but for the icing on the cake, they also stripped him of his musical abilities, as well as the capability to play a lyre. The whole story was laid out in the Iliad, and later on of course some more versions and interpretations were created, and a few additional details were added in. Like that Themis wanted to have sex with all nine of the Muses and marry one of them if he won. And then of course when he lost the punishment and they killed him, even in death, he was continuously punished by Hades, which I get it seems a little bit unfair, but apparently this was meant to demonstrate that the gifts that the gods give can be taken away just as quickly. And just something a little extra that I think is kind of interesting before we move on, New Orleans in Louisiana has streets named after all nine of Muses. Cool, right? So an oracle in ancient green life was a mortal, typically a mortal woman who was chosen to form a deep connection, a direct link to a god, and then pass on the wise advice and most commonly future predictions to the patrons that wanted to know. The word oracle actually comes from the latin word meaning to speak, specifically in the context of a priest or priestess, and there was a lot of them, similar to the pope or to Lassie. The woman would be replaced every once in a while, and she would still always be referred to as the oracle of wherever she was. So there is the Pythia, or oracle of Delphi, the oracle of Didyma, the oracle of Dodona, the oracle of Trophonius, the oracle of Ministheus, the oracle of Icaros, the oracle of Kleros, the oracle at Toion, and finally the oracle at Gurnium. The oracle at Delphi is definitely the most notable out of all of them, but there were actually oracles all over Greece, and actually some in Rome too. And of course, the idea of the oracles itself wasn't limited to Greco-Roman traditions. A lot of ancient cultures had oracles going by one name or the other, but still all providing the same sort of prophetic connection to the divine. You could find oracles all over the country, which I mean was kind of a good thing because if you needed a prophecy to break and then ruin your life over, it's better that the trip's only a couple of days. To become an oracle or a Pythia, you needed to be a very specific type of person. Well, for starters, a connection to the gods is a good place to kick this off. Most of the time, the women that were chosen for this position were priestesses who were pure, honest, and chaste which usually meant she was also a young virgin. But on top of your already dedication to the gods, in order to become an oracle, you need to be willing to leave the life that you already had been living behind and start a fresh one with a blank slate. So all other earthly ties were severed, whether it was to parents, a husband, or even children, so that she had a complete and full connection to the god. It then also started to become just safer to search for older women to take up these positions as the mouthpiece for the gods. The young virgin oracles were sort of taken advantage of and even harmed when offering the advice of the gods to some of the men that came to ask. When the oracle was in session, because she was not someone who was just always open for answers. Like, the oracle of Delphi actually only really interpreted the word of Apollo for like nine days out of the year. During the nine warmest months, so probably like March, November, and then only on the seventh day of each of those months. So it was not that bad of a working schedule. But when she was accepting questions, she would first have to be purified by fasting and only drinking and bathing in sacred waters, Once that was all taken care of though, she would assume her position in the temple, laurel leaves in one hand and spring water in the other, and underneath the feet of her seat was rising vapors from a crack that was allegedly pouring out of the slain corpse of the serpent python. And later on, when it was investigated with modern science, they found out that those sickly but sweet-smelling vapors were actually ethane, methane, and ethylene, which mixed together makes one great hallucinogen. And everything she did say was never questioned. It, of course, was always attempted to be avoided, but it always came true. There was actually apparently a king who went on a big long mission to try and figure out which one of the oracles was the most accurate with their tellings. So he sent out seven men to visit seven oracles and asked them the same question at the exact same time. What is King Croesus doing right now? And of course, our girl, the oracle of Delphi, got the answer right and he was making a lamb and tortoise stew. Yum. So now, placing all of his trust on her, he asked her about this upcoming plan to try and attack Persia. And she told him, without any additional context, if you go there, a great nation will be destroyed. I'm paraphrasing. But he took that as a foreseeing of his victory, but it actually was his great nation that got destroyed. Many of the gods have had the opportunity to control over the oracles, like the Titanus Dion, Hera, Zeus even. But, of course, Apollo is the most common god to speak to the mortals through a mortal Finally, there's the Fates, or the Mori. These three girls are typically feared for their role and perceived control over mortal life, but their purpose was really just to represent destiny. And just to clear this up here, the single eye and single tooth thing is a feature shared by the Grey-E, or the group of Grey Hag sisters, not the Fates. This misconception I think is probably a result of the alterations made in movies and TV shows where they kind of simply take mythology and jumble a bunch of things together. Post, present and future indoor plumbing. It's gonna be big. But the fates all had their own eyes and their own teeth. They are the daughters of Zeus and Themis, the goddess of divine law and order and their siblings are the Horei, or the hours, which actually just means portions of time because they were responsible for the seasons. The Hore are usually described as being young and beautiful women, whereas their sisters, the Fates, are either just as young and beautiful or more likely withered old lame women. The three Morai sisters all have their own role to play in the control of our mortal lives. So first off there's Clotho, she's a sister who is also called the spinner and that of course is because she is the one who uses her spindle to spin the thread of life for a person. After that was done, the next sister came into play. This is Lachesis or the Allotter. She is the one in charge of measuring out the length of a person's life. She was also ultimately the one who was deemed to be responsible for their fate. And lastly there's Atropos who was the oldest of the fates and is referred to as the she who cannot be turned or the unturnable. And of course, she is the one that cuts the thread of life when that person's time is up. But she was not just responsible for making the final cut. She also chose the manner in which the mortal died. And because of this reason, the three fates are usually related to the other gods of death. As soon as a man is born, his thread of life is spun out, containing all the aspects and consequences. And when it was their time, the thread is cut. But this was not always a thousand percent concrete. It could be meddled with by Zeus if he wished, and of course, the humans could possibly even change their own fate in good ways or bad ones. They usually take a backseat in the story of mythology, just kind of like being an entity that is ever-present, but there are a couple stories where they do interact with those whose lives they control. The most common myth with these girls involves the birth of a prince. When King Aeneas of Caledon and Althea had their son Meleager, two out of the three fates told his mother that her son was going to be noble and brave but Atropos said that when the last log in the fireplace burned completely, he would die. So to prevent this, obviously, she took action and grabbed one of the burning pieces of wood and hid it away to protect his life. And she kept it hidden away for many years, and her son did grow up to be a super awesome hero, just like Hercules. He actually became the youngest of the Argonauts. And when he returned home after sailing on the Argo, he settled down, got married, and everything was still going good. Until, of course, Artemis released the Caledonian boar to make up for them not making the proper sacrifices. So in order to stop the chaos being caused by this gigantic boar, Beleaguer gathered up a bunch of other great Greek heroes, even a huntress, Atalanta, was there. But she was actually sent directly by Artemis? So odd. But the other heroes weren't really okay with her being a part of the hunt. She was, of course, eventually included after the persuasion of Maligar though. And she was also the first one to hit the boar with an arrow. It was then finished off by none other than the prince himself. So because her arrow drew first blood, Maligar wanted to give her the animal's hide as a prize. But some of the other men did not like that idea at all. But Maliger was so dead set on his ruling that she deserved it that he actually killed his two uncles over it. Once his mother learned that he had killed two of her brothers over this piece of skin, she returned to the place that she had hidden the half-bird branch for all of these years and tossed it in the family hearth again. Once it had been consumed completely by the fire, her son died as well, just like the fates said. So even though there were ways that the humans could change their fate, most of the time it was unavoidable in one way or another. And don't get me wrong, there are a bunch of other groups of women that are super interesting and have very interesting tales, like the Pleiades, or the Graces, the Grey, or the Furies, but we will get to all of them later on. But yeah, being back on schedule feels great, it feels great to be back at work. So now moving on right directly to the question contest to win the free Oh My Gods t-shirt. This week's question is, how many oracles of Delphi were there? So now if you know the answer, you can have it over to ohmygods.ca slash contest and submit your correct answer and then add in your contact info and t-shirt size. And if you get picked, you can win a free t-shirt. Alrighty, well yeah, so that's it for today. So next week, keeping things back on track, we'll be going over the deities who are personified concepts that we haven't really shined any light on yet. Some of them we have mentioned in earlier episodes, primarily during the theogony ones where the universe was being formed. And even though there were a lot of gods introduced then, there is still a whole bunch more of them coming up next week. If you like what you heard, please feel free to follow, subscribe, rate, and all the rest. And if you're looking for info or deets, check out ohmygods.ca for the reading slash watching list, as well as the cheat sheet and the upcoming episodes. Again, thanks for listening. Okay, Bye.